Hi, all, and welcome to Always Already Podcast. This is B. I'm John, and we have yet another amazing, wonderful, special guest with us today, one of B&I's colleagues and close friends, Joanna Tice, who is a PhD candidate in political science and women's studies here at the Graduate Center. Joanna, thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. I'm jazzed to be here. We're jazzed to have you. Maybe. Um, maybe we could start, you could give the listeners a bit of an overview of your project or your research interests more broadly. Well, I guess I would say, given that we're talking about Mahmoud's text here, um, basically what I'm trying to do is emulate exactly <laughs> what she's done, except for the um, American evangelical and evangelical experience more broadly. Um, basically, my dissertation project is looking at evangelical thought, qua political thought, in the 21st century. Um, as of right now, I'm looking at four characters, uh, Rick Warren, Sarah Young, Sarah Bessie, and I know the name of my four characters, <laughs> <laughs> and Rob Bell. Uh, so basically, as we go through this, it'll probably become apparent just how enamored I am with Mahmoud's um, philosophical commitments as well as the style she brings to her own project, which is very similar to what I'm trying to do in my own. Right. So, I mean, it's obvious why we had, and we asked Joanna to come on to do this specific text, I think. And um, I think we all really liked the text. Absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. But before we discuss it, we want to put in this wonderful summary that B created in case you haven't had the chance to read Slavo Mahmoud's The Politics of Piety. So here's B. And thanks, John, for that introduction. Um, so today uh, we're going to be focusing mainly on uh, two chapters out of Mahmoud's book. Um, and those chapters are entitled The Subject of Freedom, and uh, the second is Agency, Gender, and Embodiment. Broadly speaking, um, these chapters focus on three uh, capacities, I should say, maybe agency in politics, embodiment ethics in politics, and religion and religious subjectivity. Um, we find Mahmoud dealing mainly with trying to resist in a way, and uh, you'll have to forgive the use of the word resist, uh, the duality between resistance and subordination and asking questions of agency and asking actually whether we can think about agency in a multiplicitous way. Um, how does an agent um, work within normative structures that doesn't necessarily uh, seek to undermine or subvert those, sub uh, those structures, um, but rather produce within them uh, their own mediations um, of those structures? It's a constructive work uh, in one sense um, of how practices uh, make subjects, and in practices, we can say epistemic practices, um, actions and deeds, um, seek to remake um, social and political imaginaries. I think that's one really um, interesting point that, um, or even thread that engages most of the work that we um, discuss today. Um, there's also the issue of embodiment ethics and politics, and for Mahmoud, um, importantly, ethics and politics um, seem to be inextricably bound together, or if not inextricable, co-implicative. Um, it asks questions related to um, pietistic subjectivities um, that challenge assumptions in many ways that these subjects are passive or uncritical um, of the normative structures around them. Again, going back and asking the question, well, um, can an agent be considered an agent um, if they do not seek to so-called, quote, resist 
that the political project is in itself um, seeking to cultivate uh, capacities, uh, in the sense, capacities of each individual uh, subject as social agent, and in the sense, um, talking about agency as relationality, uh, that there are linkages between uh, individuals within communicative spheres uh, that links politics and ethics. There's also uh, this focus on the piety movement as a means of ensuring that what we think subjects do uh, is not purely resistance, but rather what subjects do is to construct the social world around them. Um, working within a normative structure, as I was saying earlier, uh, but also working within a constructed world of their own making as well. And it's something that throughout the chapters, Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud's informants, as it were, um, also build upon, saying that in fact the moral agency of each individual is built not only within the normative structures of, say, uh, Islam, uh, but also that those structures are used in ways that uh, provide the individual uh, creative agential uh, capacities. So it isn't that religion in itself is a structural, quote, strain or constraint upon agency, but rather religious subjectivity can become a site of um, agential capacity. And in one sense, we want to call it freedom. Uh, capacity is freedom and positive freedom, nevertheless. Um, that we think about bodily acts and embodiment as a means of realizing uh, certain kinds of um, subjective freedoms. So uh, Mahmoud uses uh, the uh, example of veiling oneself uh, for the purposes of modesty or enacting modesty um, as a virtue of femininity um, within certain um, Muslim uh, cultures. And as in this um, situation, focusing on Egypt, this is not to say that uh, it is anti-feminist or in any capacity uh, seeking to reduce the femininity of a female or to say reduce the freedom uh, of a woman, but rather uh, freely choosing in the sense uh, agents or social agents within uh, this uh, structure um, use at hand interpretations of what modesty means to enact femininity. And thus we have to revert back to the lived experience of that individual and how that individual speaks to her experiences as capacities to act, as capacities uh, to speak on one's own behalf without um, having an interlocutor um, such as ethnographers, anthropologists, social commentators, and other um, outsiders, as it were, speak and misrepresent them. So the book's chapters that we focus on today are almost primarily dealing with degrees of embodiment, how we materialize uh, the interior um, to an extent, or rather uh, how the interior is always already materialized uh, through bodily acts. And I think that one important uh, notion um, to draw from Mahmoud's work is that agency is found through relational activity and through communicative processes, and that we have to challenge presuppositions uh, of the other in our encounters analytically and critically uh, if we are to move forward with a fruitful discussion 
about agency, about ethics, and about politics. So I wanted to start off the conversation with Mahmoud's uh, conversation about agency, which obviously runs throughout uh, the entire two chapters. Um, and what I found really interesting is this concept um, that, you know, which I love, uh, as we've known from previous episodes, that agency is real um, and that people do have the capacity to act, um, even within structures, normative structures that seem in a way kind of holistically um, overpowering. And it seems like what she's attempting to do is move in a direction to suggest that, in fact, it's within these normative structures, these so-called discursive structures, that we find the capacities to act in their own terms. And um, what I found most beautiful, other than the fact that Mahmoud's writing style is just so brilliant and clean, but yet conceptually deep, um, is that she gives back to women, but certainly um, the subjects of her own uh, piece, um, that ability, um, which I think in so much Western feminism about patriarchy um, and oppressiveness and religion, etc., we deny women and we deny social actors in general. Um, and so I fully appreciated and, it w and totally endorsed the way that she approached it. So one of the issues about Mahmoud's discussion of agency, which I thought was really fascinating. Obviously, she goes through, as B talked about in the introduction, that, you know, she adopts certain elements of Foucault's view of agency. She adopts certain elements of um, Judith Butler's view. But then she goes beyond that, largely because actually of the subjects that she's studying and the issue of, one of the issues of being transcendence, the idea that agents are um, subjected to a transcendent will. Um, but throughout chapter two and chapter five, she kind of comes to a point where she points out that this actually gives her actors an agency that they didn't previously have um, or that they wouldn't have in their situation, in their particular social context through any other means. Uh, and in addition, I, I was curious to see if maybe in some of the other chapters or in some of her other writing, uh, she goes on to talk a little bit more about the ways in which um, this sort of Islamic trans, trans, transcendence um, might have a particular uh, resistance to liberal and or capitalist and or neoliberal um, discourses mm -hmm. and the ways that her actors are using that. Sure. I mean, I think that one of the things about her, <clears throat> her notion of agency that's so helpful in both of what B and Joanna, you two, were talking about is that for her, agency really is a form of practice and it's a form of embodied Absolutely. practice, right? And it's by this attention to the body and habits and habituation and what it is that the body creates and what it is the body does and so on and so forth that she's able to provide kind of such a rich, textured, agential account of the practices these people are engaged in and the way that these embodied practices, right, that they are the form of world-making that these particular people are engaging, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just that um, 
you know, it's a turn to actually taking the actors on their own terms, or it's not just a turn um, to kind of engaging the particular discourses that she's engaging, but it's particularly through the way she's thinking about agency in terms of embodied practices that enables her to do that. Right. It's giving material life to agents, or giving material life to subjects in general, which I think a lot of critical theory has a tendency not to do. And I mean, even when we're talking about a sort of a transcendental will, or, if, of course, if we're dealing with religion, we're always dealing with some kind of, um, you know, in a way, I'm, I'm going to use this, but I, I want to f- sort of resist using it in, in other um, areas, uh, a universal quality mm-hmm. um, to what's um, pushing people in their agency is on page 30. Um, she writes, each individual must interpret the moral codes in accord with traditional guidelines in order to discover how she, as an individual, may best realize the divine plan for her life. And it's interesting that you know, it's always a possessive, right? It's always how does this – and it, so on, on the one hand, you're saying how this moral agent, how this spiritual agent, how this social agent, right, is acting in her life. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's the reapplication or the reassertion of that possessive that excited me um, the most um, in in the way that she was describing the capacity of women within this mosque movement, for example, uh, reacted, acted. And I think I'm, I'm totally on board, right? Uh, it, I couldn't, obviously, I can't disagree with your interpretation here of an embodied action. Embodied action in itself is something that comes from a place of the universal, but obviously within a reli- within this religious space. Right? right. So I think that what's really interesting about that is the way that she does that and returns, you know, as you say, the social agent, the moral agent, the religious agent is it's still always her own agency. And one of the things that's really impressive about this book, or at least the parts of it we read, I think, is that she does that while still having kind of deep connection to the other forces that are going on and shaping that agent, right? So, you know, to go back to this question of, you know, what kind of transcendental or divine um, forces are at play in these people li- people's lives and how does that interact with their own agency, I think that Mahmoud does a really nice job of talking about how, well, it's just kind of, you know, all of us, our agencies are constrained by certain forces um, that are to some extent outside of us, even if they're constituting us. This is just another form of that kind of force, right? So that doesn't preclude any sort of agency, but it's a very, very close attention to the actual conditions that agency can be enacted and practiced. And I thought that was one of the most fascinating elements of her use of sort of the body as a a mode or a vehicle to find agency, because a lot of times we think of um, our body, at least in sort of the Western tradition, as hampering our ability to be a gentle. So it, whether our emotions take control of us or our body is in too much pain to take the appropriate actions or, you know, we're too tired or et cetera, um, she actually points out the ways in which through bodily practices, um, she gave the example of shyness throughout the fifth chapter where um, one of the women she was interviewing continued to practice shyness in her public life, even though she didn't feel any genuine sense of shyness and that the veil itself produced sort of almost a dome of shyness that she could um, become more and more uh, sort of enacting of her, of her pietistic beliefs. Um, And the body was actually 
an aid in that rather Mm -hmm. than sort of probably coming from the Christian tradition, we think oftentimes as the body as sort of the center of sin and being the locus of all of our sort of religious problems or our, um, our inability to actually be a gentle. I think it's, it's funny. I wrote off to the margins in some of those sections, that quote from Foucault, where the soul is the prison of the body. Um, and the way in which these women are using that is kind of inverting it and in, well, not really inverting it, but using it in a way that suggests that, well, here's, we might take, um, Foucault's statement in that sense, traditionally to suggest that the state and other disciplinary forms, um, religious or social, um, is operating on the body in such a way, um, as to, you know, produce certain kinds of, of habits that, um, make people more efficient. And here's an example of how bodies are reclaiming a certain degree of, um, discipline, uh, for the purposes of, of reenacting and enacting um, spiritual states of shyness. Well, what she's doing is interesting also because it's that, but it's that without saying that these other quote-unquote outside forces aren't also at play. That yeah. It's actually in the interplay between the body mm-hmm. and these other forces that are circulating that that's where agency or that's where kind of the reworking or performance or inhabitants of certain norms in particular different ways um, actually takes place. It's in that interplay and yeah. I think that that interplay is something that I know in things that I've done and written before I've probably missed because it's kind of a hard zone I think to access and I think it's a hard zone that critical theory or that certain kinds of feminism have access in. Well, she multiplies out, uh, this is what is so amazing, she multiplies out these controversies that um, that that, fa- that these particular women face. And by controversies, meaning asking questions related to what everyday practices these individuals um, make use of um, and how we would call or on what we would call agency is, is problematized and what we would call womanhood is problematized and what we would call shyness and modesty is problematized. And so she's unwilling to sort of take a black boxed approach to um, negotiating agency like you're suggesting. It seems like, you know, she's, she's making this claim that here are these, you know, the subject is, is a moving target of multiple agencies at once. Um, and I think that that was so compelling is that she hesitates and like it you know intellectually hesitates before you know attempting to you know to make an you know a negotiation about what is you know behind the activities of each of these individuals subjects or you know social agents whatever we choose to to call them I mean, do you two think that she's accurate? Because she makes, you know, the assertion a couple different times, particularly in the first chapter, but it's also elsewhere, that this it is this kind of agency that much of Western feminist theory, and she'll say, you know, even some say subaltern feminist theory, um, is unable to access, right? Do you find her critiques of, you know, of post-structural feminist or post-colonial feminists um, convincing? I do, actually. I think that... So I guess what I'd say is, from what I've read, again, of agent of agency in subaltern feminism, um, is really, really sticks to the dichotomy between um, sort of a secular agent and um, a religious submissive. Uh, and I think that she really breaks down that division in a way that is much more effective than anything else I've read. 
I'm not sure, though, that that's what subaltern feminists are doing. It seems to me that a critique is in some ways of subaltern feminism is for too much engaging in the dichotomy, not of secular religious necessarily, but of resistance or subordination so that mm-hmm. all agency is either resistant or it is subordinate yeah. and that her, it's, her, it's her critique of western feminism that one of her critiques of that is this critiquing this very binary between secular meaning active or agential and religious meaning passive that that's a target of her for uh for western feminism yeah. well yeah well so for western feminism it's the idea that there's a, there's such a thing as progress in the first place and that everything has to be emancipatory, which in that sense requires a degree of, or some some contours of resistance. And then in subaltern feminism, the critique would be, why are we still clinging to this dichotomy between resistance and, and um, subversion or um, resistance and subordination, where agency operates as a, as a kind of mechanism through which we can resist, um, and rather just sort of work. I think there's somewhere she mentions, um, instead of developing a, a so-called theory of agency, she's working within, a, she's working a grammar of the concepts um, that exist within agency. So she's multiplying out agency. Right, she wants to come up with sort of the alternative modes of agency. Yeah, yeah. So, it's, so it's in that sense of kind of exploding the, you know, exploding binaries that most, post, most post-structuralists were attempting to do. Um, but unfortunately, um, you know, in many ways started to, especially in emancipatory politics, started to reinstantiate. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to think about agency in these ways that um, are kind of, uh, in one sense, kind of counterintuitive. Because you might think, right, how does one exist as an agential subject within uh, a, you know, again, maybe I'm playing to the binary, uh, but within a scheme of, of, of something that we might Im- initially call subordination, right? Um, and if one is if one is taking on, for example, um, as I think there was an ethnographic account uh, of sort of more orthodox um, Islamic viewpoints about uh, female uh, modesty or feminine mm-hmm. modesty, um, is that an enactment of agency? Um, but the way that she sets it up, the way that Mahmoud sets it up is in conversation with that woman's husband and the household politics of the everyday life of that woman um, and how she was reacting to her family and how she was reacting to her husband's um, you know, dismissal of her wanting to be more orthodox and how that was in itself a kind of resisting um, or at least that was in itself an agential uh, working within an agential capacity. So that was the thing that I suppose stuck out for me most. It was agency is capacity, right? Or capacities. Yeah, Which I absolutely. thought was really, I think, was just mind-blowing. To, to link that up with certain concepts of capacity was just, that's a, that's a linkage I never really made. Well, I think that's the piece in which she goes beyond what a lot of subaltern feminism is doing in its attempt to try to suss out um, acts of resistance um, out of sort of the everyday acts um, of piety of women in these situations um, in the two-thirds world. 
that I think that she does that in a in a way that hasn't really been done before or isn't being done in any sort in broadly at all mm-hmm. um, in subaltern feminisms. Right, and then again, that's also, it's a critique of that and it's also a critique of the way that Western feminists in some ways trying to respond to ways that they um, understand subaltern feminism correctly or incorrectly. We could talk about that, but... And the reason she's able to do this is, again, through the particular notion of agency she has and through attention to, as both of you have pointed out, paying attention to the actual practices and the actual things that these people are engaged with and the kind of concepts and self-narration and way that they understand their own lives, right? So she says that the concepts that we should use to capture the kind of agency or the kind of ethics or the kind of virtue that these people are enacting in their day-to-day lives have to be, those concepts that we use to understand that have to be extracted from what they're actually doing, mm-hmm. as opposed to some set of concepts that, you know, we in the West, or, you know, the three of us as white people from the West, would go impose on those particular acts or those particular actions. So it's through her particular attunement to embodied practices or what people are actually doing that she's able to achieve that particular objective. Right, and therein lies the the real importance of her comment on at the end of the first chapter on page thirty six, where she says that the question of you know what what the mosque movement is doing for hierarchical um, systems of gender relations is not our question to ask. Right. I love that because it's just it really encompasses and resists so much of, especially for myself, someone who is within the field of political science, so much of what political science and other social sciences try to do, which is, you know, what John just said, trying to assert a particular understanding of or a particular solution for um, particular groups uh, who may be under, a, you know, be perceived to be under a particular regime of patriarchy or a particular regime of their culture mm-hmm. or their religion. And, you know, she says our task here is not to try to find that solution or to, um, but rather to just under, to understand their way of thought and to take it seriously. Yeah, I think, you know, and just directly after that, I, I drew a little heart on, you know, to, to the right of it in the margin. These notes are always the best. Yeah. They're always my favorite to read. Um, Even if, they're, they're fun to read whether he likes something or whether he hates something. Yeah. It's a good time anyway. <laughs> it, it is. It's, my margin notes are always a little strange. But um, if there's one lesson uh, we've learned from the machinations of colonial feminism and the politics, quote, global sisterhood, is that any social and political transformation is always a function of local contingent, and this is where I put the little heart sign, (laughs) and emplaced struggles whose blueprint cannot be worked out um, or predicted in uh, in advance. And I love, you know, just, I mean, even if it's a neologism, but the the idea of an emplacement, right, that it's always within the the boundaries of, um, if, if on the one hand it's the capacities of people, are bounded by certain kinds of normative uh, or discursive structures that um, we have to think about them. The very ideas um, that are produced about how we think about them um, must come from an understanding of those very, you know, normative and discursive structures that we can't operate from the outside. In a way, you know, it's it, we're always going to be on some level operating from the outside in. Right? It's always going to be this kind of etic, you know, anthropological perspective. But acknowledging that theorizing critically has to take into account the capacities that are created from within, 
those normative structures that we're attempting to address, talk about, analyze. Um, that that's the first step, right? Um, so, again, multiplying out the controversies here, um, borrowing from Latour. Uh, imagine that. Imagine that, Latour fanboy here. Uh, just, it, it just absolutely the way um, she approaches this is, it, it was just so, I don't know, I still say it's mind-blowing the way that um, she's approaching the idea of having critical thought. She even takes critical theory to task mm-hmm. later on. By saying if, if all we're doing is attempting to make illusory the other person's or this other idea's, um, you know, conception or formula, that's not critical theory. That's weak, right? The point is to learn, right, to, to gain something, right, from, from conversation. And that's why, I suppose, in part, her invitation or insistence mm-hmm. that we... Um, be remade by this engagement with another person's worldview um, actually got me thinking in, in my own marginal notes uh, about... Which I also enjoy. <laughs> I don't want to make you feel left out. I only do stars, no hearts. No hearts and stars. Uh, <laughs> she, so this invitation that she gives um, that requires that, you know, she says on the top of page 37 that we... requires that we occasionally turn the critical gaze upon ourselves. I kept remarking how uh, her theoretical model could be really nicely applied to a critique of neoliberalism or liberalism or capitalism in our own um, in our own worldview, in our own um, daily lives in our own life worlds uh, and so that's something I definitely like to talk about in terms of how her her theory can be applied not only to this particular context that she's doing as her case study, but also expanded out to talk about critiques, as you say, not a weak critical theory, um, critiquing something else as the outside, as the weak other, but to actually have a strong critical theory of critiquing um, the hegemonic viewpoint within our own culture. Which is partly a kind of a methodological thing that she's doing that at times is explicit, but is completely there throughout at least the parts of the book that we read, you know, where she says that what she's doing in terms of kind of seeing what concepts can be generated from the lives of these own people and the way that they understand their lives and articulate and conceptualize their lives to themselves and to, you know, to her, the researcher, that it's through there that we can move from examples to concepts. And then maybe those concepts can circulate or maybe those concepts can travel, right? So it's also another aspect of kind of the move that she's making from instead of imposing our concepts or our categories on these people, but actually asking what concepts and categories can emerge from what these people are already doing in the way they're already understanding themselves. And then the concepts emerge out of there, enable some of these concepts to travel potentially in some of the particular ways that I think you're interested in thinking about, Joanna. Yeah. And I think, uh, the other, the invitation, I like that, Joanna, the invitation that she's making, um, is one that, comes from the fact that her discipline, which pioneered ethnography, actually looks into the everyday. Um, whereas I think in a lot of instances in the social, if we call it the social sciences, um, the, the everyday practices of individuals is often overlooked um, for the more generalization, for bigger generalizations and um, organism, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, conceptual theories that 
um, that can, we can maintain. And her ethnographic approach is to say, okay, well, here are the particularities. Here are the lived experiences. Here they are. They're right in front of me, I, you know, from what I can talk about my field notes and what I've inscribed there um, and working outward from that point. So it's, you know, it's in that sense that um, she's also making that invitation to look at the local, but really look at the local. Like if you're going to make – if you're going to converse about people, visit the people. Talk to people. Um, you know, if we're going to – for instance, if we're going to talk about the effects of neoliberalism or capitalism on the everyday life of the person, we'll talk to people whose everyday lives are impacted by those forces that you, you know, claim to exist or that we claim to exist as hegemonic or strong. Maybe that's too Latorian, but, uh, <laughs> but I think that maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think that, you know, certainly like that would be in my view, Mahmoud's call. It's like, so for, so if we take those general generalities, let's look at the particularities of our own, um, everyday lives. with Carol Gould, who is Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and Political Science at the Graduate Center and Hunter College CUNY, and she also is the Director of the Center for Global Ethics and Politics and the Editor of the Journal of Social Philosophy. So very busy, especially considering um, that she's also a great teacher, whom B and I have both taken courses with, and in addition to the multiple excellent book she's already published. She has a book coming out with Cambridge University Press this fall entitled Interactive Democracy. So Carol, welcome to the Always Already podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So perhaps we'd like to ask you to start by giving the listeners a bit of an overview of the book. So perhaps specifically in some of the, in terms of the framework that you open the book with in the introduction, where you talk about investigating a dual problem in very broad terms, both of why democracy has in many ways been unable to fulfill its promises, and then secondarily a question of how we can deepen democracy and achieve economic justice, both locally and globally. So perhaps you could maybe provide a bit of an overview through that framework of democracy. Oh, well, that's a big question, and (laughs) I'm I'm delighted to have the opportunity to give that a try. Um, Just very briefly, then, um, I think we're pretty much all aware that democracy isn't working very well, um, not just elsewhere where they may lack democratization or formal democracy, but even in the United States. So the question is uh, why that is the case. Um, there have been many uh, you know, fairly superficial um, attempts to explain its defects. Um, but um, my, my view is that, in part, we have uh, an inadequate conception of democracy and that democracy, as is pretty well uh, recognized, at least among critical theorists, is undermined by uh, the lack of equality in the economic sphere, especially, but also in the social sphere. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, when we look globally, there's been a lot of emphasis, at least among political theorists, uh, about 
global justice, about trying to deal with, with poverty um, elsewhere and to some degree also at home. Um, and in my view, the problem, those two issues of democracy and greater equality and, and economic justice are interrelated, are closely interrelated. Uh, and shouldn't be treated separately as they've been done in the literature. In other words, there are democratic theorists and then there are theorists of global justice right. or international theorists. Which seems like a kind of artificial divide, yes? Certainly these days with the uh, you know interconnectedness uh, that has emerged, especially with technologies, but also forced on us with economic globalization. And that has its pluses and its minuses too, of course. So... Um, my view is that we need a more um, a deeper approach to democracy and a more comprehensive uh, view of uh, how to look at these problems in relation to each other. And the book really tries to do that. Um, and it offers a kind of synthetic perspective, synthetic in the sense of not, <laughs> not artificial, but a uh, comprehensive perspective, uh, a view of things that enables us to take really seriously issues of equality and the cr criticism of domination and oppression, economic equality, social equality, social justice, while at the same time um, providing some direction for at least improving the situation vis-a-vis -vis democracy at home and abroad. So it's rather um, a broad book in, in attempting to provide um, a framework a theoretical and to some degree practical suggestions that uh, really allow us to move ahead on, on those fronts. Um, and so it uh, adopts not really a strictly political view. My, my thesis is largely that we need to look at society and its social relations um, as a way of, um, to address the problems in political democracy and in sort of justice abroad. We need to look at the actual social relations in which people stand and um, focus on some of these new directions of transnational social movements, solidarity as a social conception, power, but also as a social conception, not just political power, uh, violence even socially. We need to look at issues of um, gender, care, recognition among people, the, and we need to go beyond the emphasis just on reason, public reason. We need to look at the cultivation of empathy among people. Uh, so those are all sort of social concepts, right. which in the core central section of my book I elaborate at great length. So the book basically, just the structure, is first a sort of theoretical framework, mm -hmm. which also introduces notions of human rights and um, a social ontology of human rights, and as well as justice and democracy and solidarity. But but really, the core is that middle section, which is about uh, the the way that social changes can help us with these political issues and with economic issues. And then the uh, final uh, section discusses the application to democracy in terms of regional and global democracy, the use of the internet for mm -hmm. democracy, deliberation and democracy, discourse, um, emancipatory networking. So networking as social networking, not just social networks like Facebook, right. but social networking um, and is also a core idea of how to move ahead with respect to 
democracy. I talk about democratic management in the uh, labor and at work as a, as a key. So in other words, not just within politics, mm -hmm. but in other spheres of life as a way to really improve our democracy in ways that I try to articulate in right. the book. So quite an ambitious book in Very, the best yes. way possible. Yes. I think it's, um, you know, will be a, a useful view of how, how to move ahead on these questions. Um, I had a question, actually, and it's something that you just mentioned, which is um, social relations as they stand, or what you had just mentioned is social ontology, which was one of my favorite subjects in classes to take. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on your conception of social ontology, rethinking it or thinking it through? Well, that emerged originally from my uh, reflections on Marx and my book, Marx's Social mm -hmm. Ontology. Um, and it, it signifies a theory of the nature of social reality in terms of what, what makes up society conceptually, individuals, relations, processes. My specific notion of social ontology is one that sees the basic entities as what I call individuals and relations. In other words, as critical of the abstract individualism of, you know, liberal individualist theory, um, the alternative isn't just to see everybody as parts of a whole and to lose their individuality, but instead to see people as always in relations with others and concrete, specific relations. So um, I developed that in my book, Rethinking Democracy, as a rather full-fledged account of these individuals and relations. And now I use it here in the context of what I call interactive democracy, which yeah. is the name of the book in the sense that I, I'm interested in democracy that's founded on interaction, that, that takes seriously the ways people can cooperate and sometimes do implicitly in everyday life, even though they don't necessarily recognize it. Sometimes it's behind their backs, as it were. Um, and I, um, I'm looking for this more uh, dynamic and cooperative and interactive conception of democracy based on the social ontology. So, I mean, one of the things you're trying to do in the book is to rethink the way that we conceptualize and justify human rights on the basis of the social ontology, on um, the basis of thinking about individuals and relations. So perhaps if you could explain how it is you conceptualize human rights through that framework, and then also how your own particular development of the concept is positioned via, in relation to other sorts of ways people justify human rights philosophically. Right. Well, often human rights are just taken to be legal rights, mm -hmm. and clearly that's not sufficient and kind of loses their moral force. I'm very, um, you know, inspired by Eleanor Roosevelt and that whole image of human rights as really addressing a lot of the basic concerns that people have responsive to their fundamental interests. And <clears throat> I see them... Um, as a kind of variety of moral rights from which, which can then structure legal mm -hmm. rights. They, they're, we haven't appreciated them enough. They're often taken to be just these constraints against nation states. But if you reflect on where the, what they are and what do they come out of, I think that they are responsive to basic social claims that people make on each other and for the basic conditions that people need in order to develop themselves, as I put it, in order to be free. Mm -hmm. So human rights specify the, the set of conditions, some of them absolutely fundamental and others essential but not quite as central, 
Um, and I really think they have a kind of radical potential that hasn't been appreciated. Uh, it's dismissed too easily as just constraints on what officials can do within a state. And just, of course, the concern of people abroad and not in the U.S. I think they actually have a lot of potential to uh, apply to the United States, although that's like a subject for a next book. <laughs> um, or one of my next books that I have in mind. Because, for example, the Supreme Court couldn't, uh, I shouldn't say, I don't want to give away my core yeah, idea here. Yeah, we've got plenty of time to work it out. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. So um, the justification is um, based on, it's not derived from the fact that we do recognize each other. Because I do think there's something about people that merits recognition. But it's not merely their abstract human dignity, but it's their what I call agency, but in a kind of richer sense of uh, that's embodied in our action in which we transform ourselves over time through intentional action, through you know choices, but choices that are embodied in our actions. Mm -hmm. So it isn't just purely like rational choice or liberal choice, but it's and then the core idea is that. Although we each have this capacity, I think, with possibly some exceptions, which you have to deal with of, you know, people in a vegetative state, um, which is a, an issue, but um, which I address a little. But anyway, basically, I think people are characterized by this self-transformative capacities and developing themselves over time, which is a notion of freedom that I call positive freedom. And but that also involves that they have various access to various conditions in order to develop themselves. You can't just sort of wish yourself to be something and instantly you are, right? So you need to have various conditions like uh, not just liberty, but um, you have to be able to eat and you have to have some security right. and you have to have health and education. And I think that human rights specify those conditions. But so they represent claims that each of us makes on, on all the others um, for as human beings, for these conditions for us to be free. And uh, instrumentally, I think it's reasonable to try to meet these within a given nation state and the other, for other people within the other, another nation state. But basically, it's a cosmopolitan view in the sense that, in principle, we really owe each other the efforts to realize these conditions. So it seems that human rights could be seen as a sort of ethical obligations on the part of everyday practice, yeah. in addition to sets of procedures that operate at the political or institutional level? Yeah, well, those are, yeah, well, one of the human rights is probably to some form of democracy as equal rights to participate mm -hmm. in the collective choices that we have. But yeah, they are basic claims that we make on each other, um, yeah. I wondered, um, so from that, I, I kind of, I'm always critical and a little bit hypersensitive to proceduralism and institutions in general, um, but is there a way that you could develop or that we can develop these normative, in, in such a way, ethical obligations that we have to one another without imposing proceduralism or without imposing institutions that seem to co-opt those ethical obligations or maybe even corrupt those ethical obligations? Well, I don't think you can get everything that you need just by a kind of pure ethics of encouraging people to be nice to others and, you know, I mean, 
Um, this is really more of a political philosophy in that sense that, I mean, I think uh, on a large scale, we it's not that it's a separate domain from the ethical. So unlike Rawls, it's not just a matter of the basic structure. I do think that the correlate in terms of personal interaction uh, to my notions of equality at the international stage or at the institutional uh, stage, sorry, would be things like um, mutual recognition, mutuality, mutual aid among individuals. Uh, so, and the view does have implications for personal, interpersonal relations in families, for example, or just in, in everyday life, um, which is not like a separate sphere. On the end, in fact, I'm saying that we need to emphasize the social sphere in which people act together with others. Um, as a basis for transforming politics. But I think that we do need institutions. We need them, um, at least as economies and societies are presently structured. You need redistribution. Um, you need also distribution. Um, property forms probably of some sort, although they should be more communal. Yeah. Um, and you need democracy as a political institution. So. Procedure is not enough, and my view is actually much more substantive than most theories of democracy um, because I emphasize the way that people recognize each other when, um, <clears throat> you know, in political context um, and can act together in supportive ways and cooperative ways. So it's about as far from being purely procedural as you can get without completely you also need procedures for fairness, though. You know, you can't just and you can't just hope that if people act nicely, everything will be fine. Yeah. I don't think that works very well. Because there were some good ethics around from the 19th, 18th century. You know, Kant and Mill. I mean, it would be nice if everybody just followed all those. Well, they're not bad. Take them along. <laughs> or Sorry, I gave a, I gave a look. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she did. Yeah, that's right. You better explain why. Yeah, I gave a look. For all Kant and Mill. I mean, actually, you need to put them together and you need to update them. But they're inadequate. Yeah. Uh, you know, for at least for politics, yeah. and they're not motivating, and they don't address the large-scale context. So. But I'm, I'm into the local as well. I'm into introducing um, contexts of, um, of decision-making within smaller-scale communities, too, which are still institutions in some sense, yeah. rule-governed. So in that sense, maybe we could talk a little about your notion of interactive democracy more directly, even though when we're talking about ethical obligations towards others or these questions of you know, recognizing others' capacities for self-transformation, we're starting to get some of what's involved in that uh, particular concept. So maybe this way of thinking about what interactive democracy looks like, whether it's more locally or more globally or in the interaction between the two, uh, might be something you can tell us a little bit more about, either right. conceptually or in practice, or again the relation between theory. Yeah, and conceptually there. is easier for right. me, unfortunately, yeah, as a political philosopher, a social philosopher. But um, I do have some practical suggestions too. But um, well, it's a complicated notion of interactive democracy. But I have in mind also, um, especially. Uh, at the global scale or transnationally, we have to look for new ways in which we can hear from people at a distance because there's obviously this big democratic deficit with respect to globalization. Um, people are 
organized by corporations and large-scale institutions of global governance in all kinds of ways that may not be necessarily their own choosing in which they have almost no say because of the power of these large-scale institutions. So one of the new things that dem democratic theory really has to look into is how to provide input by people at a distance into these institutions that so affect their lives. Right. I mean, that can yeah. deny them um, means of subsistence, you know, through big corporations, Shell Oil or whatever, just making it impossible for them to maintain their, um, to get means of subsistence as they were previously able to. Uh, or in more advanced contexts, you know, I'm sure that sweatshops aren't necessarily of people's choosing. Um, so sure. the question is how can we think about more input into these large institutions, corporations, as well as institutions of global governance. It's not sufficient, I think, to talk about just uh, the old stakeholder theory where the head of the corporation imagines what are the impacts of our corporate policy on people at a distance, on the community, on the environment, and that's not sufficient. So we need to look for these actual new forms of democracy um, that would be not necessarily replacing nation states, but uh, additional to them. Regional democracy is interesting to me because of regional cooperation, but obviously the EU has its problems there too. So, uh, but I do think that regional is probably a, w a good new direction rather than just going to a global context. And then I have some suggestions in the book about how to introduce more representation into transnational institutions. And it, and it seems to me that this idea of interactive democracy is also important for the way you talk about introducing democracy into the workplace in terms of worker-managed yeah, firms yeah, yeah. or something yeah. like that as well. Totally important to me. So I just wanted that – was, that was one half, that okay, thing about sure. input. And the yeah. other half of it is really thinking about what is the basis for democracy? What is it what, – what justifies it? And therefore, where else does – what is its scope? Mm -hmm. And that I'm drawing on my previous work to elaborating that. So it's not just a question of input or everybody affected by a decision has a right to participate, which strikes me as useful for that context of providing some input at a distance, but you can't – everybody's affected by almost any decision or, sure. you know, it's so hard yeah. to know. So I propose that wherever people – are um, engaged in what I call common activity, which is a term I got from my teacher, Ms. Arendt, Hannah Arendt. I didn't realize I, she used it, but she did. Um, <laughs> so wherever they're engaged in a common activity in institutional contexts, I think that people have an equal right to, on the face of it, to participate in the decisions of that collectivity. Okay. So that's a very broad understanding of democracy, which applies not just to the um, political governments or nation states, but it applies even to firms, which is very important in my view, to a requirement for democratic management, and it probably applies to social institutions of various other sorts as well, like even universities. Wow. I'm going to get to that. Um, but uh, so I have a question about that actually. <laughs> So uh, those are the two contexts, and I think what we need to do in order to really um, get more democracy is to recognize, to develop democracy as a way of life, to go back to Dewey's idea of democracy as a way of life, a form of society in which our interactions with each other are sort of quasi-democratic, in which we are, have are active 
and responsive to others, and where we have prima facie equal rights to decide on things in, the, in firms, in social institutions, as well as in politics. Because as Carol Pateman notes, based on John Stuart Mill, the practice of participation is um, educative. Mm -hmm. People learn through doing, through participating. Right. And I really think we need to look at, at increasing the opportunities for democracy um, very broadly, wherever people think of themselves as being in some kind of community or some kind of shared institutional framework. So, you know, I guess that leads into the question I had, so I'll, I'll kind of rephrase it. Um, then it would be a critical element of this theory to conceive of decommodification, as I would say, education, and the circulation of knowledge, whatever that knowledge might be. So knowledge through practice, et cetera. So how would you see university life, or how would you see um, education proper in these kinds of democratic settings? Oh, well, we have too many administrators. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, who's going to be listening to this? I think I'm in trouble. Um, the original idea of you know of a community of scholars is a nice one, um, coming out even from of the Middle Ages, you know, and kind of it is one of the areas where that can be democratic, shared democratic uh, control over. Um, at least the processes of education, but it's been um, very much undermined, and it only applies within faculties. And you know, now it's become much more a management kind of structure, which is not a democratic management structure, and students have little say as well. Yeah. Um, and so I see that as my own view of education is a kind of enabling um, and an eliciting thing, a very Socratic view of. Uh, not necessarily how Socrates actually practiced, because some some of these dialogues, right. the guys, the old the interlocutor is saying, yes, Socrates, no, <laughs> yes, no. But rather the notion of eliciting um, and uh, facilitating the learning process uh, in a reciprocal. In this, I learned from my students, especially graduate students, um, and sometimes undergraduates. And so we, I mean, that's not necessarily, since democracy involves listening, too. This is sounding all too sweet. I've got to... Uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, like it. It isn't really sweet. <laughs> yeah. It's not, because yeah. it's, um, it's based on a critique of what's actually going on, and, the, and that's a pretty harsh critique and quite explicit in a way that other people somehow don't address, which is, um, you know, the way that capitalism informs and undermines a lot to some degree, well, to some degree, not everything, undermines politics, especially in the United States with the uh, lack of any controls over money influencing politics. Mm -hmm. And it undercuts um, education Certainly. as well, Absolutely. especially when we're supposed to think of our students as, you know, consumers, uh, clients, or mostly consumers. So I think we need to address that. And it's on the basis of that sort of criticism that I've developed my positive normative view. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to be critical of all forms of domination, oppression, exploitation, then the opposite is a notion of equal freedom, but of the equal freedom of people, but not just their bare freedom to choose and they looking at them as static through history and static over time, but a notion of um, the capacity of people to transform themselves through acting on the conditions that they need, including nature as well as society. 
there's that really is that connection from your early work on Marx. Or it's, yeah, so. it's yeah. a straight line, really. It's one big project. Um, yeah, because based on uh, my sympathetic um, reading of Marx's view, I mean, his view wasn't entirely pure because it was mixed with some elements that were unfortunate. But basically, he's a very strong critique of, of exploitation under capitalism and the alternative that he himself points to of the freedom and community of people, a notion of cooperation and more freedom for each, a very egalitarian perspective. But the, he didn't develop it much. And so I'm, I've since then saw that what it implies to be critical of that is a conception also of democracy, actually, a fairly radical democracy and of the equal freedom of people. And I've developed that in my subsequent work in globalizing, rethinking democracy and globalizing democracy and human rights. And now I think interactive democracy pulls it together in a way that I, what, shows people how and applies it to present situation. back and it's time for the best radio segment in the entire world my tumblr friend from canada are you ready joanna to dispense some advice born ready good so the first question comes from john in brooklyn hey that's me um <laughs> so basically writer's block how do i deal with it friends i'm just really struggling on writing my dissertation right now i can i can i go jump in there bean uh look I am all about stream of consciousness uh, to my favorite authors of all time, William Faulkner, Virginia Woolf. Sometimes it's just about sitting down and just writing. Those two wrote amazing dissertations, by the way. They were really disciplined. Yes, very disciplined indeed. (laughs) Um, So I just sometimes I just think sit down, write and just write. And sometimes if it's not, you're you're trying to come to meaning, but meaning, I think, in many instances, it comes from editing the work that you're engaging in. And sometimes, so writer's block, I think, just has a lot more to deal with the, the idea that you're, or at least a, a point that you're trying to make, and you start overthinking the point that you're trying to make. What if it's even before that? What if it's like I sit down at the computer and even trying to do that, there's nothing? So, well, literally, stream of consciousness should be about what is happening in your brain at that very moment. What if my brain is cat video, dog video, Facebook, my Tumblr feed, et cetera, et cetera? Oh, well, in that case, <laughs> Joanna, would you like to jump in? Yeah, actually, I wouldn't. I, I apologize if it gets a little too personal, John, but... um. I happen to know that your writer's Brock produces some pretty amazing writing. <laughs> he sent me some writing last week. He was like, oh, Joanna, I'm having the worst writer's block ever. And then... Here's something that got published in Hypatia. Some... <laughs> I wish. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. So uh, I would just say keep doing what you're doing because it seems to be working okay. out okay. No, no, no. This, that's the thing. It's not working out okay, right? Because it involves me, like, when I sit down to write, like, sitting at the computer for an hour and a half before I not, I before any words go onto the page, the, of me being anxious and freaking out. Oh. Well, I mean, do you just find yourself, like, Facebooking and Tumblring and That's all part of those it. other things? Well, I mean, you know, like, I use a thing to turn off certain parts of the internet for me for certain yeah. intervals of time, but it's like the anxiety. It's writer's block qua anxiety. Well, I think, and again, I think the anxiety comes from, it really comes from a place where you are obsessing about a point that you hope to make or that you have a point to make to begin with. 
And I think it's in this instance that you just got to sit down and just accept the fact that the things that are coming out um, onto the screen may for that, you know, even if they're vomit. Yeah. Even if it's vomit. Maybe for that first page. Sweat from online anxiety. Sweat and anxiety. Even if they're words and strings of words that make absolutely no sense, that out of that kind of that morass could potentially come a thought that triggers a whole array of inspirational things that you want to say at a later time. Because it's not, you know, it's not necessarily the idea that um, something you know, significant and genius has to happen at this moment in time when you're sitting down to write, but rather one single sentence out of, I don't know, a hundred could be the thing that you keep. And yeah, that sounds oppressive and depressing, but if it's that that one single sentence that could potentially bring out a whole string of, what if that one single sentence inspires you to write five to 10 additional pages, which it's done for me in the past, right? It's, you know, it's something like, for instance, today I told you I wrote a paragraph yesterday, but that was out of writing like three pages and I deleted everything down to a fucking paragraph. I hope you saved that other stuff in another document. I did. Okay. But I mean, it, it, you know, that's depressing when you're like, oh my God, the only thing I got from that is a paragraph. But I think that there comes, you know, there, that's the price that you pay for a certain degree of. But here's the thing. I have no problem, like, as we were chatting before the show, like, affirming B, your paragraph, is, like, a major accomplishment. But if I sit there for four hours and the only thing that happens is that there's one paragraph at the end of that, I can't affirm that for myself. <laughs> so you can affirm it for other people, just yes. not yourself. Oh, okay. Well, then do you're just, just being neurotic. Not as I do or something. Yeah, but then you're just being neurotic. All right, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Lacanian analysis. For you. <laughs> thank, thank you, B. All right, uh, time for our second question. And that second question comes from Lily in North Carolina. Lily writes, "I'm working very hard on my dissertation and actually making progress." I would insert, "Congratulations to you, Lily. I wish I had that situation." But she says, "My romantic life with my partner is waning. How do I rekindle the passion?" Well, I have to respond to that, Lily, that I find the best way to rekindle the passion is actually through the writing process itself. It always gets me really excited and, you know, feeling in the mood. And then when your partner comes home from his or her respective job, you just uh, let him know how you're feeling. And I think that's brilliant. Uh, I, on the other hand, have the exact opposite. Yeah, I'm going to um, be on this one. Uh, I'm surprised based on what we yeah. learned about me. Yeah. So here I am, you know, I, you know, writing storm, you know, there. Uh, afterwards, my brain is just not in a place to, you know, to be uh, interactive. So I feel for Lily to a certain extent. Um, well, who said anything about, you know, mental activity interaction being required here? Uh, that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know what you mean by that, Joanna. You're scaring me. Yeah, I was like, this sounds very abstract and innuendo-ish. I don't know. Um, well, okay, so here's my you know, heartfelt, you know, advice for Lily would be um, to write naked. Um, because in one instance, you know, I think that in that, that maybe the last 30 minutes of the writing process, you know, you, you get to feel the, the body that's, you know, actually typing out the words on the screen. Um, and, you know, I think in in that instance, if your respective, your lover comes home, your partner comes home, 
um, and sees that beyond the initial question of what the fuck are you doing, um, I think the the partner. I would hope that would be obvious. Yeah, I think the partner will then be like, "This is awesome," Uh, you know, depending on how long it's been. Um, So I'm taking it from the question that it might it's been a long time between you know loving intimate sessions. you know, just, I think that that could initiate things. One other, like, even, I think this, these are great pieces of advice. <laughs> um, but even something else, if, like, your mode is not to, like, write naked, my, I don't know if I would, like, I don't know if that would do it for me, even if I, like, did it for a partner. So, I'm mean, one thing to think about, perhaps, is, you know, regardless of where you are in your writing for the day, like, give yourself, you know, a half hour or an hour of, like, alone time to kind of reorient your body and your affective state and so on and so forth. You know, whether it's like, all right, so my partner gets home from work at 7 o'clock, so I'm going to stop at 6 o'clock and take a bath. Or oh, I was just about to say that. Or do something like that that will reorient you away if it's, like, the dissertation that's in your way of, like, your intimacy or whatever it is, then take some time. Or even if your partner's there to be like, hey, partner or lover, it's, you know, I'm done for the day, but I need a half hour of alone time, and then, like, I am there. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's also something to consider. And I might also address a little more of the, we don't really know from what sense this question was coming. Was she referring only okay. to sexual intimacy, or was she also hoping for more just sort of a general relational warmth in which case you know john's suggestion of having some alone time to sort of prep yourself so that you're recharged and not obsessing about the dissertation might actually be the right suggestion so two things i guess like to to riff on that which is i think you know totally right um you know cuddling and watching tv sometimes like an old episode of the golden girls right just really for me does it i mean sometimes co- i mean does that not work for anyone out there I know, seriously. could our could you our know, listeners please my write in this is my theory in response to joanna's prescient question it's not that there's any that i think people don't like it it's that we're not supposed to like that or mm-hmm. consider that to be like a moment of intimacy right. or something right it's like if if it's not purely because it's sexual, not orgasmic right it well you know it's in its own way it is orgasmic like, <laughs> right but it, know, it's it it's not achieving that. the couple yeah. Yeah, goal exactly. of an ultimate product. Yeah. So, I mean, I find it extraordinarily um, uh, intimate to, to cuddle and watch television, um, and it's very fulfilling. Now, the other thing would be if it's going to be sexual or you're trying to, you know, ignite the sexual qualities of the relationship, I always find a bath um, with bubbles and lavender essential oil Ducky. with a um, sandalwood candle burning not only relaxes, but definitely, you know, gets you, you know, in the mood for set activities. I have another piece of advice for Lily. Um, make meals with your partner, oh, right? Because it's a, yeah. you know, it's not just, uh, like, because it's, you know, can be a mode to eating, like, food that makes your bodies feel good. It can, like, be a look at this thing that we're constructing or creating together, and that's cool. And it's also just, like, a totally different kind of practice than writing. So it is, and it's super cute. Yeah, that's cute. That and does you can, not like, pinch each other and be like, oh, you smear a little, you got a little food on your I cheek. Know. Oh. Well, and I guess the last piece of advice I would give is just that 
uh, us ap- academics tend to get inside our own heads a little no. bit. No, no way. Never. So it might just be possible that you're, you know, Lily, you could be overanalyzing the situation a little bit. Maybe your partner has some things going on, him or herself. So, you know, just talking to your partner would never hurt either. That's oh, true. Joanna. Oh, Joanna. Thank you, um, thank you Joanna joining us yes thank, thank you, you so much for having me How it was a pleasure now that you've been on the always already podcast like i want you always already oh. be on it every single day oh my god um thank you so much for coming we're really happy and we'll have you back on at some point to talk about a text or talk about your own work or sooner rather than later okay Absolute. so be as always thank you thank you uh so you can always email us at always already podcast at gmail.com send us talk about on the show send us advice questions to answer send us general compliments about how wonderful we are <laughs> you know uh visit us at always already podcast.wordpress.com uh follow us on itunes subscribe to us on itunes follow us on facebook etc etc stay tuned for our next episode where we will be discussing a couple chapters from genevieve lloyd's man of reason um so stay tuned for that so be joanna bye everyone It's a pretty big deal, this podcast. It is. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. The Always Already Podcast is a creation of B. Altman, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon. Email us, texts you'd like us to discuss, advice, questions, and more at alwaysalreadypodcast at gmail.com. Visit our website, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to our RSS feed, podcast, etc. on iTunes or whatever you like. Thanks to B for the episode and this music with him riffing on a little bit of Metallica. Join us next week for the rest of our discussion of Saba Mahmoud's Politics of Piety and the week after that for our next episode on Genevieve Floyd's Man of Reason. Until then, thanks. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.